Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida. This is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, Chris Hockman and I sit down with Dr. Bo Adams to discuss the letter to the Romans. Bo is the director of Pitt's Theology Library and Margaret A. Pitt's assistant professor in the practice of theological bibliography at Emory University. Bo joined us early in our journey through the Bible, all the way back in episode 5 when we discussed the end of Exodus. Bo has a PhD in New Testament from Emory, a master's in library science from the University of Alabama, and is a software developer. Our conversation moves us through the letter to the Romans with an exploration of our own interpretive baggage, Paul's rhetorical style, and then close readings of Romans 8.28 and Romans 13.1-7. great to be back and it's fun to talk about Romans, although a little bit intimidating. It's such an important text, uh, particularly for Protestant Christians in the Western tradition. Um, so Romans is, is situated at an interesting point canonically as well as historically. So we talk about canonically, meaning just where is it in the New Testament? As you mentioned, it follows Acts. And so it's the first letter that we have in the New Testament. And so you've You've had to this point all of these gospel narratives and then this narrative of the early church, and now you shift into a letter, which is in itself a weird thing. I have a, a colleague who likes to say we're reading other people's mail, yeah. which is this weird situation to be in. Um, and it also is a major break now that we're going to turn in the canon and we're going to look at this figure, Paul, for 13 letters. So a major half of the New Testament now we begin and look at this figure's individual writings. Um, historically, I think Romans is really interesting within Paul's life and Paul's ministry as a whole. First of all, it's important to remember that all of Paul's letters are written toward the end of his ministry. So he's kind of a seasoned minister or a local pastor. He's been through a lot and seen a lot by the time we get to the letters at all. And then it's probably most likely that Romans is the last letter that Paul wrote, at least that we still have a copy of. We know that for a couple of reasons. One, he's kind of making a pivot in his career, as he tells us in the letter. He's going to turn and now go toward toward Spain. So he seems to be writing to the Romans to introduce himself, and and he plans to go there on his way to Spain. And because it's at the end of his career, really, I think we can get a sense that he has a little bit more experience, and he's been through a lot. And so a lot of the issues that we might imagine have come up in his career, and indeed a lot of the issues that we see in other letters, now kind of come together into a kind of more higher level picture of, of how Paul understands this thing he calls gospel to apply to local communities. So um, the, the trap, of course, is that we fall into thinking, oh, this is Paul's theology, right? He's, right. he's spent his career, and now he's going to sit down and pen this great theological work. Romans is not that. It's still a letter. It's still written to a specific congregation and facing a specific situation. But it does have a bit of the kind of seasoned veteran feel to it. Um, and, and that way, I think it's a helpful way of kind of introducing yourself to Paul's thoughts. And so we get into this anytime we read the Bible, but I think especially as we get into Paul's letters, we bring this baggage to it, I would say, mm-hmm. of, um, yeah. of we've had an experience of it. We've had an experience maybe with a passage in it or something like that. How does that affect our interpretation? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Romans in particular, that's the case, particularly if you're speaking about a Western Protestant context. Because there has been no more important text to the development of the Protestant traditions than Romans. And that begins at the beginning of the Reformation itself with Martin Luther. Uh, Romans and Galatians were at the very center of of Luther's theology. And that makes sense. If you're familiar with traditions of uh, Protestantism, they kind of jump off the page at you when you read Romans, right? You see this language of 
faith and grace and salvation, all of this stuff that's core to those traditions. And so part of what our task as interpreters, even if we're in that tradition, is to kind of remove all of those layers so that we can revisit the text kind of for the first time. Um, I have another colleague who used to always say that one of the challenges is the students have almost Bible, like they almost know what the Bible says, but that becomes a hindrance to their actually reading the Bible. Right. So when we approach Romans, what we have to do in a strange way is kind of forget everything you know about Romans and let Paul speak to the community directly for the first time. Yeah, almost like you're a member of that community hearing this letter, I would assume, read to you for the first time. That's right. And, and, and I think one thing that's interesting, I mean, Romans is, is a practical letter in a number of ways. And one of the ways, if we read the first two verses of chapter 16, he's commending Phoebe to the community. So in many ways, this is a letter of recommendation. He's saying, hey, community in Rome, y'all don't know this person, Phoebe, who I think it's important to note, he calls a deaconess, which is a really significant thing. And we can talk about that. But it, it is, in some way, Paul's letter of introducing himself and Phoebe to this community. Yeah. Um, and so we can imagine if we were in Rome in the you know year 57 or whenever this was read, yeah, we don't know anything maybe about this person, Paul. And we're hearing from the first time someone, maybe Phoebe herself, reading this letter to us. Mm. That's really helpful. As, as we get into reading Romans, and as I was reading Romans, I noticed that some words kept coming up again and again and again. Can you give us some quick kind of either, uh, maybe maybe definitions, but definitely kind of a keyword list of things to kind of look for as you're reading Romans? Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, one of the things we didn't mention before is those kind of Protestant buzzwords, you know, the, the faith, the grace, the righteousness. Those all come out of Romans. So those are major components here. So I would say your tendency, at least my tendency, is kind of raised in the Protestant tradition. When you see those words, know that they are significant. And they're really significant in this text. I think it's important to note as well, some of those terms like faith that we think dominate Pauline thought actually don't appear in a lot of Paul's letters. Hmm. But here in Romans and Galatians, they absolutely do. Um, For me, I think the key to understanding the letter and the key concept that Paul is working out is the term righteousness. And that's really hard because that's a really hard term for us in English to understand. And even the underlying Greek concept behind it is really, really complex. Um, so if, if I can, if we want to look at one passage where I think it first comes up, yeah. I think is, is first to think about, we can do that. Um, and we can talk about other terms because obviously there are some other significant ones, but I think this is really the key one. So I'm going to, the first chapter Verse 16 and 17, which a lot of people think is the, quote, thesis statement or whatever you want to call it. But really, I think early on in the letter identifies what Paul's thinking and why he's laying this out to the community. So I'm reading here and I'm having to be reading the New American Standard Version. But it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, we could spend all day unpacking those two verses right there, but I think what you see in that passage is a couple of key ideas coming up. The first is righteousness, Mm -hmm. and that righteousness here is a quality of God. Hmm. Second is that that righteousness, that quality of God, has now been revealed or is, is being revealed to humanity. So you might think of this kind of evokes the kind of John 1 language of, you know, that was, was made flesh and dwelt among us. So there is something about a quality of God has now been made manifest for human beings. And then it's connection to this idea of faith. That is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. So it has some kind of characteristic of faith that has to do with God and to faith. 
which has some characteristic to do with us or as the receivers of this revelation. So I think right there, and you can see this idea of righteousness being connected to the faithfulness of the community. And I want to emphasize community because oftentimes we read Romans as kind of individuals, mm-hmm. but it's really about the community. That to me is kind of the key idea that really Paul is trying to work out throughout this. So on the positive side of the ledger, the good words, righteousness, faith. And then I think as we would go further in the letter, you'll see some of the bad side of the ledger, the sin words uh, and the wrath words, which certainly come up, particularly in chapters one and two. I find it interesting that like, I believe this, the righteous will live by faith is actually quoting Habakkuk too, which I find really like you were just saying about how the word faith doesn't actually appear that much in Pauline texts. And then here it shows up pretty early in Romans, but it's him quoting, you know, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And like you said, we forget how often, not just this, not just Romans, but I feel like a lot of the letters we forget are about community and not individualist, which is a flaw for us as Western believers. Of course. And of course, ironically, Romans itself has been a major part of that formation of the, the, the Protestant individualistic mm-hmm. idea, right? A kind of strong reading of Romans by people like Augustine, like Luther, like Calvin. Um, I, I think your point, and if I can pick up on that really quickly, the quotation of Habakkuk, one thing to really keep in mind, an issue that Paul is always wrestling with is how do my old traditions equate to this or work with this radical new thing that I'm talking about? And so constantly in the letter, and this is consistent in many of Paul's letters, is this attempt to tie this new thing back to the old thing, right? Because Paul can't say, a new thing has happened, throw out all the old stuff, because he is at his core a Jewish man of the first century. So what he's doing here, and we're certainly going to see this later in the letter, is to say, and this idea, this thing called faith, it's been around since the time of Habakkuk. He's going to say later, since the time of Abraham, indeed, since the time of Adam, right? So this idea of faith being the mechanism by which God's righteousness is revealed has been the way this has worked all along. As you're reading something like Romans, what is a helpful way to kind of read it to track the argument? Like what are maybe some of the rhetorical stylings that he uses, things to look out for that might help you go, okay, I'm in the midst of an argument and he might be making a counter argument here to counter his argument. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think one of the things that, First of all, because it's the Bible, we tend to get into quotation mode, right? We want to pull quotes out and those kinds of things. So so even getting ourselves into sustained argument mode is really challenging. Yeah. Second of all, because it's a letter, and I just talked earlier about all these practical things he's trying to deal with, we forget that he's also writing an extended essay, right? He's trying to make a point. Um, and so I think you're absolutely right, Matt, that we have to get ourselves into, let's read all 16 of these yes, chapters yes. together as a single mm-hmm. argument. Now, you, you raise a good point. How do you actually do that? First thing is something you mentioned earlier. What are the terms or ideas that come up again and again and again, right? So even if you're reading, just highlight every time that word righteousness comes up. Second point with that is do not assume that you know what that means at all. I mean, you, you mentioned lawyers, right? Yeah. One of the things that makes a lawyer a good lawyer is they're very precise with language and they're always defining the terms, mm. right? So when you hear something like righteousness, don't say, oh, okay, I, I got a general Christian idea of what that means. No, say, Paul, what does righteousness mean? Because he's going to tell you throughout the letter, right? So be very careful with the language that Paul uses. And I think just a small nod here, you need to read multiple translations because there are several issues in Romans where 
it's not exactly clear what's going on. And only by kind of triangulating with several translations can you actually get a sense of how nuanced some of the argument is. The other thing that I'll say to you, uh, Matt, is that outlining the whole work can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Now, the danger is, like, I look at the beginning of my Bible here, and it has an outline for me. I would suggest you throw that out. I mean, maybe not literally throw that out. But I'm not saying it's wrong. But you, the only way you're going to understand the argument is if you sit down and try to outline it. Right, right. So there's high-level arguments. Like, it, it seems that chapters 1 to 4 are kind of a piece. Chapters 5 to 8 are a piece. Chapters 9 and through 11 are a piece, 12 to 15 is a piece, and then 16. So there, there's some kind of high-level things, but I would encourage readers to kind of take the idea, if I, if I just said righteousness is important, look how he develops that throughout all 16 chapters. Yeah. Um, what about these things where he's sort of asking rhetorical, it feels like he's almost asking rhetorical questions, like he's trying to bait the reader. Right. Like, yeah. like, should we say that, should we sin more so that grace abounds? I remember being like 15 years old and thinking I should sin more so that grace abounds and then going, wait a second. Paul's not saying that. Like Paul is saying that, but he's not yeah, saying the, that. The, the answer is no. Thank to that you. Question, Matt. He says no. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, no, I think there's a couple of, couple of things going on here. One is that was a standard rhetorical trope of the okay. day, right? So the, that's the way that Paul argues. And you'll see that come up in all of the letters. Two is, you just mentioned, it engages the audience. That's why it was a standard trope. It's a way of ingratiating yourself to the audience. Remember, Paul doesn't know most of these people. They may have heard of Paul, but he's not the legend that he is in our minds right now. He is a wandering preacher who's about to come through their community and ask them for money, right? So he's got to ingratiate themselves uh, with them. And then third is, he is always anticipating the response or the negative conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's because... What Paul's saying is really controversial. It's radical. It doesn't make a lot of sense at first. And so he's always going to say, I know you're going to ask this. I have an answer for that as well, right? I think the other thing, and we talked about earlier, Matt, that this is probably toward the end of Paul's career. And he's had a lot of time to make these arguments, yeah. right? It's not surprising that Galatians and Romans sound a lot alike, right? Mm -hmm. They're the same kinds of arguments. And so I have a colleague who likes to think about this as like, Paul has a bunch of set pieces, yeah. right? And when an issue arises, he enters in the set piece, right? So, so talking about Abraham as the first person who had faith is a set piece that Paul has. And so he knows that communities tend to want to say, well, what about Abraham? We've heard about him. He has his answer right there. So I think you can kind of see some of the uh, experience as a pastor coming through in some of those questions or rhetorical questions. He's asked. already done his exegesis in a lot of ways. This is not him necessarily riffing, certainly in Romans. He's taking exegesis that he's done and kind of going, okay, I'm, I'm going to bolster an argument based upon these things I've already kind of worked out for myself. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, I, I think so the 16th chapter of Romans is really kind of a funny chapter because he's kind of says, hey, say hey to this guy, say hey to this guy. It's a bunch of names, yeah. right? But, but but actually, that's really helpful because it tells you how Paul operates. He has a network, mm. right? And he has people working with him. So if you look toward the end, he talks about, um, this is 16 verse 21. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Those are the guys who are sitting around the table with him as they're working through this letter. Then look at the next verse. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So there's the little secretary scribe guy putting in his little nod as well. The point is, this is a collective effort. And they're probably sitting around saying, hey, I think this community's got this going on. What do y'all think about that? Oh, yeah, when we were in Ephesus, we dealt with that. You know, So there is a kind of group think going on here. 
that I think is much more helpful than thinking about the kind of lone genius Paul who just is eloquent and speaking. So Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I'm taking out my Greek New Testament because this is going to be important, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we were talking about this the last couple of days, like recently building up to this about um, how this verse is probably misunderstood. And I say that as someone who has a tattoo of this verse uh, on his arm. Um, yeah, I think we we often read this verse to be like, everything's going to be great. Don't worry about it. Um, and it never says that at all. We often talk about, ah, oh, you know, um, when a door closes, God opens a window. No, sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes you're just stuck in that room um, and you can't get out. No, Chris, I, I think, yeah, it, first of all, I think it's, don't get rid of the tattoo because I think it's a great <laughs> verse to have tattooed. And I actually think if we read it properly, as Paul, I think, understood it, it's actually more powerful yeah. than the kind of standard reading of what we said. Because, I mean, 2020 is a great year to recognize that all things do not work <laughs> out for good, even for yeah. Christians, right? They work out horribly. <laughs> So let's just take that reading off the, the table. Now, I think it's really important. I think the translations usually get this verse wrong just right off the bat. So if I can be so bold to offer a better translation, please, I will do from so. the Bo Adams Testament. Yeah, this is the Bo Adams version. It says something like, for we know that for those who love God, he synergizes, and I use that business term language, but that's the literal rending of the Greek. He works together. He brings together toward good. And good stands by itself. In the verses at the end of the phrase, it is not connected to those who love God, right? So God works alongside those who love God. And the result of that co-working is this thing called good, right? Now that's really important. Because good, I mean, if we take it to the kind of uh, platonic kind of philosophical thing, the good, right, has nothing to do with whether I get the promotion that I want or I get a paycheck or I get the new jet that I want, right? I mean, so you can think about the kind of um, prosperity gospel comes out of a, a lot of this text here. And, and, and to the point later, if you keep reading in chapter eight, he doesn't talk about a lot of good right. stuff, right? Yeah. He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sort. All that stuff is a given. That's going to happen, right? So it has nothing to do with good in the sense of I'm having happy feelings. Rather, the good is the thing that holds the universe together, the, the God's ultimate control in things. So the role that we play as those who love God is a benefit toward the system, not a benefit toward the individual happiness, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I'm sorry, but I don't think loving God is a direct path to being happy in the world. I think loving God is a way of fulfilling the plan that God has for the world, for the community, um, which, which, I mean, people always joke that doesn't preach very well, right? Because you can't raise money off of that. But I think if we're true believers in this kind of universal big God thing that we talk a lot about, that's ultimately pretty powerful that we have a role in the big system, yeah. which is much more important than, than me feeling good on a Tuesday. Which is actually why I have the tattoo. When we move uh, out of chapter eight, then into nine through 11, it feels like there's this direct appeal to his Jewish audience now in some way, because there's 32, I counted 32 citations to the Old Testament in these two, three chapters alone. 
Um, yeah. I, I feel like maybe that just paints the bigger picture of Paul's project of just trying yeah. to be that bridge builder between the Jews and the Gentiles. Yeah. I mean, I think, so there's a huge debate that's been going on for decades or centuries about who is the audience that Paul is writing to. Um, and I don't want to get into that because yep. it's huge mess. And there's, there's good evidence that it's a Jewish community with a Gentile uh, contingent, or is it all Gentile? You, we could argue that forever. Whatever that is, there is certainly knowledge of Jewish traditions in this community. And Paul feels obligated to connect what he's saying to the Jewish traditions. He's done that throughout the letter, right? He started with uh, Abraham in chapter four and kind of gone throughout. So there is some concern of what about Judaism? Now, whether that's directed to Jews in the community or not, who knows? Um, So I think what we see before, and I think this probably comes out of a kind of set piece that Paul's worked out before is, how do you tie this new thing into this old thing? And what is the, you know, like we said before, it's not supersessionist, mm-hmm. but what about those Jews who are not on board with this Jesus thing? That's an issue that he takes up in chapter 11. So um, again, historically, I don't know why he's doing this, but I think it's pretty important for us to think through. And I think another issue here is that Paul, I mean, one of the tensions is monotheism itself is a tension, right? If there is one God, who is over mm-hmm. all things, then all of these pieces have to fit together. And so that's what he's trying to kind of to work out here. If you have one God who's been around forever, you can't have a lot of new things happen that feast the, imp- the power of the old things, right? And so that's kind of the issue that he's working out, I think, in 9 through 11. Yeah. I just want to set you loose on Romans 13, 1 through 7. Bo, what, I mean, what do we do with this? You know, I mean, in, in an election year, yeah. you know, and yeah, we're going to be post-election by the time this airs, but... I mean, I think there are well-meaning Christians who really warp this verse or verses. Everybody always warps it to whatever party they like. So when their party's in (laughs) power, Romans 13, 1 to, you know, Romans 13, 1 to 7 is the passage when their party's in power. And when the opposition's in power, they're like, well, you know, there's a different time kind of thing. So, yeah, Yeah. it's a really interesting thing. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's obviously some historical context that needs to be discussed here, right? That Christianity is a tiny, tiny, tiny little dot within a massive Roman Mm. empire. That Paul and his community are completely powerless. Um, And so, I mean, we can look at this passage. We can look at other passages like in 2 Timothy where he talks about the governing authorities. And there is a kind of self-preservation argument here, right? Don't make the governing authorities mad because look what they did to this other community last week, right? So there is this kind of... Uh, understanding of where they are in society, which I think it's important to note is the complete opposite of the situation we have in America today, right? right? The Christian community is the governing authority. It is the powerful authority. And in many ways is using a text like this to put down the little tiny communities, right? So it's been a complete reversal of where we are uh, right now. Second, I think it's important theologically to contextualize into what we kind of just talked about, right? Paul's focus is on the big system. And Caesar and Rome are just a tiny little Mm. bit of God's big system. And so I don't mean this to be flip and to downplay the danger that ruling authorities can be for minority communities, but Paul's theological argument is pay attention to the government, whatever. We're talking about a much bigger system that's much more important, right? Now, I think the ultimate point here in, in bringing us into American contemporary politics and the danger of kind of giving your authority up to the ruling authorities is I'd throw this text out. And I would say, 
this has nothing to do with the American political system and what we should be doing right now. I think people are uncomfortable with this. If you're going to throw this text out, why not throw Romans 8.28? Those kinds of arguments as well. But I think Paul himself, and he does this all the time, would say, this text is no good. And the use of this text is not helpful for Christian communities today. And so I have no problem with that. Um, and I'm not worried about a kind of slippery soap argument where I'm going to lose all uh, authority of scripture there. And if you read the end 13, you know, six and seven, you know, in seven, he says, render all that is due to them. Tax, taxes due, custom. He's kind of saying, pay all your things. That's fine. But then he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's what matters, right? Do all your stuff to survive as a community. But here's what we're really talking about. So I, I think it's really tragic that a few verses like this get to be like this important thing because they don't have that kind of power for Paul. The other thing in thinking about 13 that popped in my head was this idea of um, how you were kind of with your hands, Bo, kind of doing like concentric circles of, you know, uh, for Paul, he's this tiny little community in this regional area, but he's worried about a cosmic issue. And he's saying, yeah, keep your regional mm-hmm. stuff under control because we got bigger things to deal with. But when Americans try and do that, and really when they do it through the lens of American imperialism or something like that, it gets really warped. And that's what I hear you saying yeah. is once you put it into circles like that, you see Paul's way of understanding this. It makes sense in what Paul was trying to accomplish. But then when we try and leverage I, it today, it doesn't work. Yeah. First of all, I appreciate you pointing out that I talk a lot with my yes. hands, which is certainly one of my, my downfalls. It doesn't translate um, on a podcast, but that's okay. Yeah. No, I think it's really important to think about when, when this text gets used to affirm American authority, what you're saying in that is the American authority is what matters, yeah. right? And what Paul is saying here is render unto Caesar so that the community can survive because ultimately the Caesar authority does not matter, right? right? We're in a much bigger thing. So you, you kind of, I think it's a complete reversal when this text gets used to say, go America, you know, whatever the government says you should do. Early on in our conversation with Bo today, we talked about interpretive baggage, and that's the stuff that we as readers, as modern readers, bring to the text. And one of the things that happens when we read Paul's letters is oftentimes it can feel like Paul is writing that letter to us. And one of the moves we have to make in biblical interpretation that will help us eventually read the Bible without fear or frustration is to remove ourselves from the driver's seat of the text. Imagine that this text isn't written to me today, but imagine it being written and read to his earliest audiences. That not only works with Paul's letters, it also works with really any text in the Bible, including the Gospels, the Psalms, and so on. And this practice can just help you put a little bit of distance between yourself and the text. Now, this may not be helpful when it comes to texts that you like or texts that are relatable to you, but for the texts that are difficult, for the texts that cause us fear, that cause us frustration, it's really helpful to say, wait a second, this text isn't talking to me. If you want to hear more from our conversation with Bo, be sure to join our Bible Project 2020 group on Facebook. We'll be sharing an additional conversation we had about Romans 7 and Paul's understanding of his own Jewishness. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. Chris Hockman produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.